0: Well, hello again, it's Pastor Adam, and I believe I have some information today that is really going to benefit us, like always with the Word of God, it should benefit us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this day. We thank you for the Word of you, and we ask for your blessing from this Word to fill our hearts, circumcise our hearts, and make our hearts new so that we can obey you and that we have a mind that will be renewed and we have a character that will be humble. We thank you, Father, in the mighty and master's name of Yeshua, Yamashayak, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. And so today I titled this The Myth of More. Now, you know, our culture, the Western culture, is trying to sell us stuff all the time. And, and frankly, it's not all that difficult to do that because apparently, you know, we're not very, we're very unsatisfied with what we have. So capitalizing on this inherent dissatisfaction, the worldwide marketing machine spends around, uh, I guess it's like $600 billion annually to make us unhappy with who we are, with what we have, with how we look and with what we do. So at its, at its core, Most advertising is designed to make us ungrateful and to feed our greed. So I've done some research and I wanted to share with you what I found out. Now, here's some information on a study done on social comparison, advertising and consumer discontent. I'm quoting from this uh, study. Here it is. Consumers encounter countless advertising images during the course of everyday life. Many of these images are idolized, representing life more as it is imagined than it is actually exists. Repeated exposure to idolized images raises consumers' expectations and influences their perceptions of how their lives ought to be, particularly in terms of their material possessions. The result of both these processes for most consumers is discontent and an increased desire for more. Okay, I also came across this summary of a study called The Merchants of Discontent. Here's from this this paper. In this paper, I attempt to draw parallels between the psychology of commercial advertising and marketing and the psychology of addiction. Both appear to be characterized by denial, escapism, narcissism, isolation, insatiability, impatience, and diminished sensitivity advertising appeals to these impulses and addiction is marked by them. Okay. Here's another one in an article called how to motivate your prospects. We will, we're going to gain some inside information into what advertisers are trying to to get us to do. Here's what it says as an advertiser, it is your job to create discontentment inside the psyche of your prospects and make them desire the change that you're offering. (laughs) And finally, Here is an overall comment on this condition given by one commentator from this research that I've been doing on advertising. Here it is. I quote, this guy says this, because producers covered consumers' money, they need to get consumers to cover their goods. Social historians note a change in American advertising after World War I, from conveying product information to manufacturing desire. The business people came to the conclusion that the public was too frugal so to rev up the economy products were associated with images with glamour and personal identity marketing moved from fulfilling needs to creating needs 30 years later the post world war ii boom gave us products that were not made as well as they had been made in the past so therefore there is a constant need for continually upgrading of our electronic gadgets Huh. Okay. So, this doing this, you know, I had lots of thoughts coming to my mind as I'm doing this research. One of them, it reminded me of something I'd heard years ago. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. Or it can simply be said when we look at this concept through the lens of scripture. That advertising capitalizes on our coveting hearts. Now, if that's not a wake-up for all of us, I mean, wow, Wow, is all I, I just, that just comes to my mind. I mean, And see, we tend to not want to deal with this, and that is why this needs to be brought up again and again. So with that introduction, I want to dig into God's word to gain a proper perspective regarding our culture's clamoring for coveting. And as we begin this, there's no better place to start than with the 10th commandment, which dispels the myth of more. Here's God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, that's the 10th commandment. Now, here's a few observations, just generic, just pretty out in the open observations. The word neighbor is used three times by God, it, it's, it's for a reason, which is to remind us that we are in some fashion related to everybody else in the community. You know, maybe distant, I grant you, but we're related, we're humans, made in the image of God. See, coveting involves the things that others have, that others that that we may want. In this verse, that includes God says property, he says neighbor's house, people, the wife and the servants, and possessions. In this example, the ox, the donkey, and everything else. Now, if we're honest with ourselves. We seldom covet those things far from us, but it's those things we see every day that are so enticing. For instance, we may covet someone's success, not, not because you would like to take it away from them, but because we would like to feel as appreciated by others or encounter that experience as they have. To, you know, or We're told not to covet two times in this verse. This double negation is found only in the 10th commandment. And I, and as I was reviewing this, it hit me that coveting is like an invisible sin. What I mean is, what I'm getting at is that in this last command, we move from actions from the earlier commandments to the realm or the spectrum of one's attitude. And it's in that context that this sin is hard to spot in people or even in ourselves because it deals with the internal, not the external. It's, It's not so much directed at what we do, but at what we want to do. Coveting, in other words, coveting is a sin of omission, whereas the other commandments are sins of commission. Another thing to point out here is that this commandment is a bookend with the first commandment that God gave. He, the first commandment, right? To have no other gods before me. That's what God says, right? That kind of underlies all, underlies all the commands and to not covet explains all the commands in retrospect. For instance, if, one, if we were like to keep score and tally up our sins, this prohibition against coveting is probably the most often broken commandment. Well, let me give you an example. For instance, in Romans chapter seven, Verses seven and eight, Paul's writing here to the Romans and he says, well, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. (laughs) makes me ponder, you know, from what I've noticed in my lifetime, and, and more so since I've been immersed in living the Christian existence, and that's been going on for like 20, more than two decades now, and observing life through the Christian existence, through the lens of Scripture, is, is that most of us don't take coveting all that seriously. I, I mean, I think it could be called a sin that nobody will admit. But coveting is so dangerous. And frankly, it's the root of many other sins. When, when we break the other nine, undoubtedly coveting is at the root. What, what that means is at the bottom of every sin is the belief that God has somehow not given us everything that we think we need. Huh. I mean, are you, are, you, are you smelling what I'm cooking here? I mean, folks, I think the big takeaway from this is that coveting is a warning sign. When, when you sense coveting rising up within yourself, be watch out, in other words. Look at James chapter 4, verse 2. This says, you desire... But do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. In other words, folks, sinful deeds start with sinful desires. And let me clarify that there's nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts, the blessings that our good, good father gives us. But the very same thing going on there, be on the watch. Be on guard for pleasure that keeps us from pleasing God, because that would then be sinful. Oh, and, and let's, you know, I, I just kind of want to, at this point, bring up these two words, that envy and jealousy, because, you know, I, I think kind of, they're, they're kind of like kissing cousins to coveting. And, and while we're at it, let's take a stab at defining these two words, jealousy and envy to make sure I don't want to assume anything. I want to make sure we're all on the same page, mainly because these two words are hardly ever discussed. They're, they're not commonly discussed. They're used a lot, but I just wanted to make sure the def, the, that we define them so we're all on the same page. Envy. Envy is defined as the impulse of an individual who seeks to destroy somebody else's advantage, even though that person then would not be benefited by the other person's loss. That's envy jealousy, jealousy is different from envy. See, jealousy is based on the recognition that somebody else has an advantage, but if you're able to apply some degree of coercion, maybe you're able to force the other person to share some of that advantage with you. Now, how we see this play out in the culture is mainly through, I think one of the easiest ways to see this in the Western world is through this impulse of wealth redistribution by legislation. But, but envy is far more perverse than that because you cannot buy off the envious person by offering them something. You cannot make a deal with them, in other words. I mean, the very fact that you can offer someone a benefit, that enrages them. That's, that's, that's envy, right? It reminds them that you have what they do not have. And they know they're never going to have it, but they're determined to To make certain that you don't have it either. That's envy. Now coveting in the Hebrew language is used in a positive connotation and a negative connotation. To say it positively simply means a strong desire or to delight. But it's also used negatively as in an excessively strong desire to have something that belongs to someone else. It also can mean to grasp for more or an inornate or ungoverned selfish desire. One, a dictionary defines uh, coveting this way, to desire wrongfully or without due regard for the rights of others. Or like this, this is another way a dictionary has described coveting an overt dissatisfaction and discontent with what God has provided and a longing desire for what God has forbidden to us. (laughs) So whether a desire is good or not has to do with the object of the desire. I mean, for example, the trees in the Garden of Eden are described as delightful or pleasant to the eye. But soon after, we see that Eve found that one tree, That one tree, right? She's just, that one tree was so desirable and coveted, and it was the one she was not supposed to have. This is really interesting. The word desirable or desired that you read in Genesis chapter three, verse six, talking about Eve when she's looking at the forbidden tree, is the very same word covet in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that God gives for the 10th commandment. Same word, same Hebrew word. Huh. Wow. Like a very good example of this elsewhere in the scriptures is also uh is when the Hebrews were taking the city of Jericho. Remember it was remember about Achan who coveted what he wasn't supposed to have and when he got it, he hid it from everybody and because he coveted it and he was killed and the Hebrews suffered the initial defeat on the next city which was Ai. They 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 were they were defeated. Remember OK, how, I I found something else. There's a story uh, that Abraham Lincoln uh, shared, apparently, while he was walking with two of his boys who were both crying. Someone asked, he said, hey, Abe, what's wrong? And Abe Lincoln said, exactly what's wrong with the whole world? I have three walnuts and each boy wants two. <laughs> Any parent who has children, gets that example. At its core, coveting is bad because it makes us think that things can make us happy. Jesus, Yeshua was once asked by a man to tell the man's brother to divide up their inheritance. Jesus saw what was really going on, so he called the guy out for coveting. This is recorded in Luke chapter 12. That's that, right? In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says this, take care. And be on guard against all covetedness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here Jesus strongly contradicts the values of our Western world and this American coveting kind of culture. Get all my stuff, right? Jesus is teaching us that having the good life has nothing, folks, has nothing to do with being wealthy, whereas our culture teaches us that getting more and more stuff Will make us happy. Another way, I guess you could look at this in a relative terms for our culture is for everybody, is planning for retirement. Jesus is teaching that planning for retirement is wise. This is like, in other words, to say this is it's preparing for life before death. The rich man in this parable died before he could even begin to use what was stored up in his big barns. Jesus is also teaching that neglecting life after death is disastrous. If we have a covetous char- kind of character, then no matter what we have, it will never be enough. Your stuff, folks, your stuff will never, ever satisfy. Your relationships will never, ever be good enough. You will always want something. you don't have do you know i know there might be a greater audience than just america here Uh, and i'm focusing on kind of on america but it really applies to a lot of western culture but do we realize that america has had more wealth and material things than the entire rest of the planet combined and yet it has not made us more content but only more covetous if you're hearing this and you're finding yourself saying or thinking these words, if I only had, you know, fill in the blank, I'm pretty confident you have a problem with discontentment. You know, you, maybe think, you may be going, you know, if I just had a better job or a better family or a better iPhone or a better church or a better car or a better spouse or more kids or less kids or, gosh, a better sports team to cheer for, then... I'll be happy. Well, folks, that's a big fat lie. It's not true. If you're not satisfied with what you have now, you won't be satisfied should you get what you're wishing for. And if you've caught on already, God God is really tough on coveting. In fact, God says that we gotta, we, we must kill it. Colossians chapter 3. Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. So God equates covetedness with idol worship, and he won't tolerate it. Now, the cure for coveting is to learn contentment. Let's read what Paul says, writes in Philippians chapter four, starting with verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay, so even the Apostle Paul had to be taught how to be content. In other words, once we submit to the teaching, we will join a small club called the contentment club. So what is it then that this is teaching? Well, let's take a look at four classes in this scriptures contentment curriculum that I would call it. Let's call the first one contentment 101. Well, that is being confident that God is in control. Like, for instance, when Paul is in prison and once again, he can't help but break out into rejoicing. And look at that first part of verse 10 here that we just read in the Philippians. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Notice that Paul rejoices in the Lord. He's not rejoicing in his circumstances. We are to rejoice not in the blessings. We are to rejoice in the Lord. Everything is under God's sweet sovereignty and because his ways are always wisest, we can find delight in every condition. That's part of the challenge because this Western world and frankly, too many very confused ministers, teachers of the word of God, preachers of the word of God, say you're only supposed to have good things when you come to the Lord. That is a false teaching. If you're struggling with discontentment today, it is likely because you're just not letting God be God. He's in charge. He's working all things together according to the counsel of his divine will. If we are serious about becoming content, you have got to believe that. You've got to hold on to the truth of Psalm 23, 1, which says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want because God is our shepherd. He will satisfy us. Possessions, folks, don't satisfy. And ultimately, people can't provide what we're looking for either. So that was contentment 101. Here's the next class, contentment 201. We need to submit to developing a proper expectation of other people. So look at that second half of verse 10 again there. That at, here's what it says. That at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So Paul, Paul had founded that Philippian church about, when, when you study the word, about 12 years earlier, and it had been about a decade since they were able to send any support to Paul. It was like financial support so he could continue to do the missionary journeys. That phrase, at last, does not refer to impatience on Paul's part, but rather that after this many years, a decade, they're now able to give again. And so Paul, responding to the money that they had just sent along with Epaphroditus, Paul's expressing gratefulness. The word renewed Used here is like when a plant or a flower blossoms again. Notice how content Paul is with these Christians from Philippi. He he cut them some slack, mentioning that they were always concerned, but just had no opportunity to express it till now. They probably were in some really tough times. They didn't have, okay, that's what's going on. And how is Paul able to do this? Well, I think it goes hand in hand with the lessons we already should be learning in Contentment 101. Paul trusted God, right? He, would, he trusted that God would order the circumstances so as needs could be met. And knowing this truth kept him from becoming angry towards other people. It also gives, gave him the freedom to not manipulate the masses just to get their money. What, what I witnessed... in in my life, is that some of us are just way too hard on other people. We expect them to meet our needs, and when they don't do everything we expect at the time we expect it, many times simply because these people can't do it at that time, we get upset and become more discontent at the situation. So, Use this if you're irritated with others or bitter towards someone because they let you down, okay? Okay, so that's 101 and 201. Let's move on now to contentment 301. We read here, we see that Paul was satisfied in every situation. Let's let's relook at verses 11 and 12 again. It said, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In other words, in plenty or in poverty, God was still in control and was weaving his ways through both of these conditions. Paul is sharing here, he says, he chose to be content in any and every situation. Now, this, folks, is a sweeping statement that covers, well, every condition of life that can come up. The phrase to learn, right, that's in it, right, to learn, means to discover by experience, to enter into a new condition. In other words, to transform towards your spiritual side and die to the natural soul side. I mean, we could translate it this way. I have come to learn. Uh, You know, here's an idea or a thought to consider. Before you ask God for anything, thank God for what you already have. Be thankful, folks, for the basics of life that we all take for granted. (laughs) Some of us, I guess, if all of us, I mean, most of us, need to have our needs reduced, not our possessions increased. Here's another suggestion. When contemplating the purchase of another possession or attending some activity, ask yourself this question. Is this a need or a greed? I have heard it said that we should want what we have even if we don't have everything we want. Or in other words, The key to contentment is not having everything you want, but wanting everything you already have. It's it's in the scriptures, folks. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And, And another part of this contentment 301 is in order to grow in godliness, we must become content. Look at these scriptures. First Timothy chapter six, verse six says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Or Proverbs chapter 30, verses eight and nine. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal. And so, dishonor the name of the Lord. In other words, are we ready to settle for less if it means experiencing greater spiritual growth? (laughs) How how can we become satisfied in every situation? (laughs) I, I think it could be stated in this way. God has so ordered the world and our personal circumstances that no matter what situation we are in right now, we have everything we truly need to be content or, as God has said multiple times, my grace is sufficient. And I guess it's safe to say it's a myth that we always need more. We, we can have, folks, folks, we can have a quiet inward peace when we're freely and joyfully submitted to the one who's in charge of everything. Our our deepest satisfaction can only come from God, not from a change in our circumstances. And finally, contentment 401, finding strength in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 is a very popular scripture, but frankly, it's misunderstood by so many Philippians 4.13, I read from the King James Version, says I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Now what I'm getting at is too often this scripture is used almost like a magic formula to say that we can do whatever we want to do. Now in the proper context, this scripture means I can be content in whatever circumstances because of the strengthening work of Jesus Christ in my life. Once See, once we can we see the beauty of Jesus and allow him to be our full satisfaction, there's nothing more that we need. But if you're struggling with wanting more, then bingo, co- coveting alert, like the red ding, 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 you're coveting, you're coveting, coveting. Like, watch out. Like we, if if you're a Christian, we have Christ, He owns us. So when we're constantly coveting what we don't have, we're saying, we're saying, folks, that we're not trusting God to give us what we need. Unfortunately, too too many process, that is why, you know, should I trust God since he's not giving me what I want? I mean, this is, I heard this, like, you know, God's not giving me what I want. Do Do you hear the difference? It's what we need vice what we want. In other words, we can have everything we think we want. And if we don't have Jesus, (laughs) we have nothing. And if we have Jesus, we have everything. Or, okay, let's look at it like this. Unless Jesus is enough, well, you'll never have enough then. I, I think the reason so many are discontent is that we really don't believe Jesus is enough. I mean, have you ever found yourself wishing your life away? Are, are you simply enduring the present as you constantly are always looking ahead to future happiness and success? Well, if so, I, I'm hoping you can see that coveting is stealing joy from your present. We need to exchange our desires, not renounce them. Jesus doesn't want less desire from us. Desire from us, he wants more desire. Look at matthew six thirty three but seek first His kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, as we end, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, I hope this inspires you. I hope uh, it might be a little prickly for some of us, and that's okay. I hope we spend some time listening. Meditating, researching the scriptures on this and going to God. Maybe repenting. Maybe being thankful and admitting some things. Acknowledging some things that were brought out in this today. Regardless, give God all the honor, all the glory. Thank you and God bless you. Bye for now. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.CandiceSmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice or Instagram at Candice If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel.